Hello, my name is Deborah Sidaway, and thank you for joining me again as we continue the story of divorce, a series exploring the stories of the bigamists, the bastards, the feminists and the fornicators who helped shape the law of divorce in England as it exists today. And for today's episode, it is the moment we have all been waiting for, as we are finally going to get to Henry VIII. But it is not his story that I will be telling. It will be a her story. The story of Catherine of Aragon, a story of the slow death of hope and optimism, but of a woman determined to stand her ground against the will of her husband, the king. And we all know how it ends. In divorce. Or at least, that is how we think it ends. It is generally assumed that Henry VIII obtained the first divorce in England, and that he took England out of the arms of the Catholic Church to do so, establishing himself as the head of the Church of England, all so that he could rid himself of one wife by divorcing her, in order to take another wife, and finally sire the son and the heir to the kingdom that he longed for. We all know that Henry VIII had six wives, and we all know their fates. Divorced, beheaded, died. Divorced, beheaded, survived. However, as we turn to examine the history of Henry's marital past the parcel, it soon becomes apparent that this saying does not reflect the reality of what happened when it came to those of Henry's queens who find themselves divorced. But before we get to the story of Catherine of Aragon, there is one more thing we need to talk about. We need to talk about divorce and what the word divorce actually means. Today, we understand divorce to mean the process by which a marriage is legally brought to an end, where a court pronounces a decree of divorce and the marriage is dissolved, with both parties free to live their lives as single people and even to marry again if they so choose. However, this meaning of the word divorce is actually relatively new. It was only with the passing of the Divorce and Matrimonial Causes Act in 1857, an act that we will discuss in a lot more detail later in this series, that this meaning of the word divorce came into the lexicon of our language. Up until that time, people used the word divorce to mean a simple separation between a husband and a wife, not a legal dissolution of the marriage. The reason for this is because the word divorce is derived from the Latin word divortium, meaning a separation, often associated with divorce, but the word could be used in a range of ways. For example, the point of separation in a road, where it divided into two forked roads. The word divorce was not intended to convey the concept of a severing of the matrimonial bond. And it is this meaning of the word divorce that we have to take with us as we turn to our next story of divorce. The year was 1518. Henry VIII was secure on the throne and was basking in the political glory of taking England into the Treaty of London with the nations of France, Burgundy, the Holy Roman Empire, the Netherlands, Spain and the Papal States. Masterminded by the resourceful Cardinal Wolsey, a butcher's son who had risen in power and at the request of Pope Leo X, it was a treaty of great diplomatic accomplishment for Henry designed to make lasting peace for the nation and the whole of Europe. But while Henry stood triumphant on the public stage, in the privacy of his domestic life, 
it was all about to start unraveling. On a cold November night, his loyal queen, Catherine, went into premature labor. It was her sixth pregnancy. The hopes of a nation lay within her womb as she struggled to bring her child into the world. But it was not only this great weight of expectation that had accompanied her into the birthing chamber, but her dread of another pale, still, lifeless child being expelled from her body. Of her five previous pregnancies, only one of her children still lived, and that child was only a girl. Catherine needed this child to live. But more than that, she needed this child to be a boy, a son for Henry, a prince for the nation, a man who would one day become king. In the darkness of the birthing chamber, Catherine delivered her child. It was a daughter. The girl was born dead. Catherine felt the all-too-familiar fingers of black grief clutch at her heart once more. She had failed, again, and as she looked at the still figure of her daughter, she could almost see the curtains closing around her. She was losing hope, just as her husband was losing interest in her. It was not supposed to have played out like this. Catherine, a Spanish princess, was born in 1485 the youngest daughter of King Ferdinand II of Aragon and the formidable Queen Isabella I of Castile, who had spent much of her pregnancy with Catherine in military campaign. Many English dramatizations of the life of Henry VIII tend to portray Catherine as an aging, overweight woman, no longer able to fulfill her womanly function of providing an heir for her husband, stewing in her jealousy and bitterness of the younger women of the king's court. However, in contrast to this image of Catherine as an older, unattractive woman, Catherine, in her youth and early womanhood, was every bit as strikingly beautiful as any of the women of Henry's court. As a young royal in Spain, she was an intelligent, engaging, pretty girl, with long, dark, strawberry blonde hair, bright blue eyes, and as she reached adulthood, she blossomed into a petite but attractive woman. Sir Thomas More once said that in her prime she was a beauty with whom few could compete. She also had an impeccable royal lineage, not only as a princess of Spain, but with her ancestry giving her a legitimate claim to the English throne, independent of her later marriage to Henry VIII. Catherine's ancestral heritage through her mother Isabella linked her with English royalty. She was the great-granddaughter of Catherine of Lancaster, for whom she was named, and the great-great-granddaughter of Philippa of Lancaster, both of whom were descended from Edward III of England, and she was also the third cousin of Henry VII of England, the man who would later become her father-in-law. This royal lineage on its own made her a desirable bride for a prince of the Tudor house, as the Tudor dynasty had been established by conquest in 1485. It was not so much royal blood that had put the Tudors on the throne, but the spilled blood of their enemies and the defeat of Richard III bringing with it an end to the dynastic struggle for supremacy that had been at the heart of the War of the Roses. Henry VII had brought peace to the nation by bringing the War of the Roses to an end and marrying the Plantagenet Elizabeth of York. But he could not escape from the fact that he had taken the throne from men that arguably had a better right to it than him. Some of those men 
had angry Plantagenet blood coursing through their veins, and Henry could not be anything other than aware of the potential treasonous plots to seize back the throne he had taken by force and restore the true Plantagenet line to the throne. Mindful that a marriage of his son to Catherine would bolster the legitimacy of the Tudor claim to the throne, a marriage was arranged to ally the Tudor house with this unquestionably royal princess. But it was not to Henry that the young Spanish royal would be betrothed, but to his older brother, Prince Arthur, the heir to the throne. At the time that the marriage and the Treaty of Alliance was arranged, Catherine was just over three years old, the young Prince Arthur only two. To cement this politically desirable alliance between the infant children, two proxy weddings took place where King Ferdinand's ambassador stood in for Catherine to declare on her behalf that she took Arthur for her husband. This ceremony, pursuant to canon law, was considered to be an indissoluble contract, and as such it could be enforced in the ecclesiastical courts by requiring the marriage to proceed to full solemnization in a religious ceremony as it duly did. Catherine was married to Arthur, then the Prince of Wales, in a lavish ceremony in St Paul's Cathedral in 1501. The groom was 15 years old and the bride 16. The venue had been chosen to attract the largest possible audience, a royal wedding, a royal celebration. King Henry VII had been determined that the wedding would be akin to a pageant, his aim being to increase his popularity, a particularly important consideration for a regent whose grasp on the throne had been taken through conquest rather than hereditary entitlement. The wedding was a spectacle of almost operatic proportions, with Catherine entering the cathedral with great splendour, as King Henry VII would later gloat, and taking her place on a specially constructed wedding stage. She was an ethereal vision, dressed in an opulent white dress with a veil of white jewelled silk cascading down to her waist. That evening, both Arthur and Catherine were prepared for the bedding. What happened? or more to the point, what did not happen that evening, would be of critical significance to Henry VIII when he tried to bring an end to his own marriage to Catherine. It was assumed that the wedding had been consummated. Indeed, the presumption of the law at the time was that a boy over the age of 14 was capable of having sexual intercourse with his wife. Catherine was to maintain, however, that she went to her wedding bed a virgin, and remained that way for the entirety of her marriage to Arthur. Whatever happened the night of the wedding, and what followed in the intimacy of the royal bedchamber in the months that followed, it was an all-too-brief marriage, brought to an end with the sudden and unexpected death of Arthur following a fierce illness a mere five months after the marriage had taken place. With the death of Arthur... The alliance between England and Spain was threatened, unless Arthur had ceded a child in Catherine's womb to take his place as heir to the Tudor throne. However, when it became clear that her marriage to Arthur had not resulted in a pregnancy, she became, once more, a pawn on the marriage market for the dynastic ambitions of her family. But this time, it was not her father, King Ferdinand, who held all the pieces. Catherine was in England, and in the care of her tactical and ruthless father-in-law, Henry the Seventh. 
as the negotiations began over what was to become of Catherine, and more importantly for Henry VII, who was to have ownership and control over the vast treasure and property the property that she had brought with her, she remained in England, acting as ambassador for the Argonese court, thereby taking her place in history as the first female ambassador in Europe. This is the thing that most people tend to forget. Catherine was more than just one of Henry's wives. She had a story of her own. She had achievements of her own. She was more than just a wife and a mother. She was a woman with gifts, talents and strength. Yet all that seemed to matter was who she was married to. From a very early stage following the death of Prince Arthur, as the negotiations between the royal families of Spain and England crossed over the continent, and with the involvement of the papal powers, a marriage to the young Prince Henry was considered the most expedient solution to the fraught diplomatic and potential problem of the widowed Catherine. The marriage treaties were therefore thrashed out before being signed in 1503. But Prince Henry was just 11 years old, still a child. He needed to reach maturity before the wedding to Catherine could take place. The path to the marital altar, however, was not without obstacle. In June of 1505, Prince Henry celebrated his 14th birthday. Having reached maturity, he used the occasion to renounce the agreement to marry Catherine in a ceremony before officials of the King's Court and the Church, including the Bishop of Winchester, the Royal Secretary, the King's Chamberlain, and the Archdeacon of Derby, who was considered an expert on matrimonial law. In this ceremony, the young prince declared his opposition to the union, protesting that he was vehemently and utterly opposed to it. He did so at the bidding of his father, who was no longer so entranced by the benefits of an alliance with Spain, particularly since the death of Catherine's mother Isabella, which had reduced Catherine's political worth on the royal marriage market. Neither Catherine nor her family were informed of Henry's rejection of her, and she stayed under the care of Henry VII, while he continued to press for payment of the marriage portion that had been agreed in the marriage treaty, as Ferdinand II had failed to pay. This state of affairs dragged on for some time, with a miserable Catherine unmarried and trapped in England. But with the death of Henry VII in April 1509, everything changed. Henry VIII was now king, and he was a king without an heir. It was imperative that he married to secure the line of succession for the Tudor house. Catherine was married to Henry VIII in June of 1509 in the Queen's Closet in Greenwich. Catherine was 23 years old, with Henry not quite having reached 18. The wedding took place just a few weeks following the death of King Henry VII. With the death of his father, Henry had inherited a stable realm and a treasury in surplus. It was a good time for a wedding to be celebrated. However, while Catherine's wedding to Arthur had been an extravagant public celebration, her wedding to his younger brother was a private, almost clandestine affair, because not only was Catherine a widow, she was also his sister-in-law. In the lead-up to the formal wedding ceremony, this posed a problem of biblical proportions for the young king. Leviticus 18.16 provided in no uncertain terms 
thou shalt not uncover the nakedness of thy brother's wife. It is thy brother's nakedness. In short, if Henry were to take his brother's widow as his wife, it would not only dishonour his brother Arthur, it would, in accordance with Leviticus 18.29, be an abomination. In the eyes of the church, a marriage between Henry and Catherine would amount to incest. These rules against marriage between close relations set down in Leviticus chapter 18 are a consequence of the ideal of marital unity prescribed within the earliest pages of the Old Testament. In Genesis chapter 2 verses 23 and 24, after the creation of Eve from the bone of Adam, Adam says of this new beguiling inhabitant of the Garden of Eden, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother, and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. This mythic, almost cannibalistic concept of the one flesh of the married couple, repeated multiple times throughout the books of the New Testament, would eventually cause a host of problems for English married women, giving rise to the legal fiction of marital unity, which meant that a woman would come under the cover of her husband upon her marriage and would lose all independent legal existence. Under this doctrine, known as the doctrine of coverture, the wife would no longer be seen in the eyes of the law, as if Harry Potter's invisibility cloak had been thrown upon her and she could not be seen. We will come to this doctrine later in this series. But for now, back to Henry and the problem of the incestuous potential of his marriage to Catherine. It was a problem, but it was not an insurmountable problem for those with money, power and influence. There were ways to get around it. Both Ferdinand and Henry VII, as the fathers of the prospective bride and groom, had been aware that a marriage between the young Prince Henry and his widowed sister-in-law Catherine could be problematic. And they had taken proactive steps by seeking dispensation from the Pope prior to the couple making their marital vows. This dispensation would set aside any of the legal or moral barriers to the wedding taking place. The Pope had taken some time to consider the delicate matter of whether or not he would grant dispensation for the marriage to occur. When he finally granted it, with a sealed papal bull, the document contained a clause with one statement of fact that would return to haunt Catherine years later. It stated that her marriage to Arthur had perhaps been consummated. Papal sanction of the royal marriage removed the immediate difficulty of the religious prohibition of a marriage to his sister-in-law. Nevertheless, Henry was sufficiently savvy enough to recognise that it would not be politic to flaunt his marriage to Catherine with a lavish public celebration. In many ways it set a precedent for Henry, with each of his subsequent marriages taking place in private. It was almost as if, with each marriage, Henry was aware that he had something to be ashamed of that there was something not quite right about the wedding ceremony he was about to participate in. What is interesting, and I am going to go on a little bit of a tangent here, is that these biblical prohibitions against marriage to close relatives set down in Leviticus became entrenched within the law. Known as the laws against consanguinity and affinity in marriage, they survived the Reformation, 
These laws, like much of English law, developed in a haphazard way. They were first codified by Henry VIII himself in the aftermath of his marriage to Catherine in the first act of succession in 1534, and then by the church in 1563 by the Archbishop of Canterbury, Matthew Parker, in what became known as Archbishop Parker's Table of Kindred and Affinity. And while the Parker Table was never incorporated into any legislation concerning marriage, it effectively governed the matter until 1835, when a statute known as Lord Lyndhurst's Act enshrined the prohibition as law. This remained the law until 1907. It was changed after a campaign challenging it was championed by the artist William Holman Hunt, who after the death of his first wife Fanny Waugh, married Edith Waugh, her sister, in 1875. This marriage, however, took place in Switzerland to avoid the prohibition against this union in England. But on his return to England, Holman Hunt resented the societal non-acceptance of his marriage. In response to his campaign, the Liberal MP, Sir Brampton Gurdon, presented a bill to Parliament which would allow a man to marry the sister of his deceased wife with the deceased wife's sister's marriage act of that year. Hunt's marriage was finally legally recognised. However, despite the fact that the sexism inherent in this act inflamed the burgeoning feminist movement of the time, it was only in 1921 that the law allowed a man to marry his brother's widow with the passing of the Deceased Brother's Widow's Marriage Act. This act was passed after the horrific loss of life following World War I, with the sentiment expressed that many of the men going off to face the enemy in the trenches, certain that the likelihood was that they would never return to their young wives, had left the care of these women to their younger brothers, who in turn wished to honour their commitment by taking the widow of their fallen brother as their wife. But it does not pass unnoticed that if a woman were to marry again, she would lose her entitlement to a service pension. It is hard to escape the suspicion that the government was motivated by the economic benefits that would flow from this act, rather than any concern over the inherent inequality that had existed as between men and women, as to who the state considered it was appropriate for them to marry. Whatever the reason, this was the first time in centuries that a man would be permitted to enter into a marriage with his brother's widow, such as that which took place between Henry and Catherine. So let's get back to Catherine's story. If Henry had kept his wedding ceremony with Catherine a private affair, his coronation, by contrast, was a very public celebration of Henry's kingship. On 23 June 1509, the young, handsome King Henry VIII and his bride Catherine processed into Westminster, where a large and enthusiastic crowd were waiting to see their monarch and his new queen. The royal couple spent the evening in the Tower of London, the place that would come to be associated with Henry for far more sinister reasons, being the place of execution for two of his wives. It was Sunday, 24 June 1509, Midsummer's Day, a day that had traditionally been celebrated as a day of rite and ritual, a day, according to folklore and superstition, when the dead could travel from the afterworld into the present as the solstice sun rose in the sky. 
In Henry's time, Midsummer's Day was still associated with such myths, legends, and fairy tales. Even though the church had attempted to suppress these pagan rituals in favor of a celebration of the birthday of the Christian martyr John the Baptist, replacing the heathen festivities with the feast of St. John the Baptist. It was also a day associated strongly with fertility. As such, it was an auspicious day for a monarch in desperate need of an heir to be crowned as king. The coronation was a lavish ceremony, taking place amidst the Gothic splendour of Westminster Abbey, legitimising Henry's claim on the throne. And in that place of spiritual harmony, William Warham, who as the Bishop of London, was one of the 19 bishops who had officiated over the wedding ceremony, of Prince Arthur and Catherine, and then the wedding ceremony of Henry VIII and Catherine as the Archbishop of Canterbury, crowned the king and his queen. As they began their married life together in the glowing fullness of the midsummer sun, the newlyweds bathed in a blaze of optimism and hope for their future. But the brightness of their dreams and their dynastic ambition was soon dimmed by tragedy and loss that would challenge their marriage and change the course of history. This story, Catherine's story, will be continued next time as the story of divorce continues. Once again, my name is Deborah Sidaway, and I invite you to follow the podcast series on Twitter at, at Story of Divorce, where you can drop any comments or questions. Thank you for listening, and I hope you join me again soon.